Hello everybody and uh, welcome to what is already the ninth episode of our ZSL Wild Science podcast. Doesn't time fly when you're having a good time? I'm Moni Boom, researcher here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And with the winter cold closing in all around us, today we will journey to warmer climes, tropical shallow water coral reefs. Feeling warmer already? Well, good for you. But while we may enjoy warmer climes, coral reefs are struggling with the effects of climate change. The seas are now getting too warm, leading to widespread coral bleaching events and in turn, incredibly high mortality amongst corals. Now, coral reefs cover less than 1% of the world's oceans. They support a ridiculously high number of other species, including many species we as humans rely on for food. So in this podcast today, we'll be asking whether we can still save coral reefs and how and what happens if we don't. Now, helping me to chart these hot waters is today's co-presenter, Rachel Jones. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Moni. Thanks for inviting me along. Uh, Rachel has worked on corals at ZSL for 20 years and, frankly, is ZSL's very own coral whisperer. Rachel, do we have an idea of how many species coral reefs support to quantify my highly scientific statement of (laughs) a ridiculously high number? Well, we know that even just shallow water coral reefs most support as many as 9 million species, and they provide habitat to about a quarter of all the known marine species as it stands. But as we start to factor in the less well-known, deeper reefs, that number is just going to grow and grow and grow. So a ridiculously high number was actually quite correct. So um, coral reefs like the Great Barrier Reef have been in the news a lot lately, mainly due to a massive coral bleaching event that happened, I think, in 2016. What actually is coral bleaching? It sounds a bit like something that might happen uh, during my laundry. It's much, much worse than that, I'm afraid. To understand bleaching, you first have to get your head around the very special symbiotic relationship that the coral animal has with a little algae called zooxanthellae. The algae lives inside the coral's tissues, uses the sun to produce food, and it shares that food with the coral that it lives inside. So that's quite a cute little story. But this relationship can go wrong when the water warms up too much. The zooxanthellae start photosynthesizing like crazy, and they produce more and more oxygen. And this starts to damage the coral's tissues. So in a last-ditch effort to keep itself safe, the coral makes a radical move and expels all of the algae cells out of its body, leaving it a ghostly white colour. That's where it gets the term bleaching from. So in the short term, it's a clever emergency survival move, but quite quickly the coral is going to start to starve without its little algae to feed it. And these periods of warm water usually happen every few years when there's what's called an El Nino event that warms the seas up. So when bleaching happens over huge areas of reef, like it's done in in 2015 and 2016, lots of corals can eventually die. And that's what we're starting to see now all over the world. So apart from Rachel, our coral whisperer, we have a number of other guests with us today, including some grand masters of coral reef research who can tell us about the ins and outs of the changes that we've seen in coral reefs over the past 30, 40 years. Who's up first, Rachel? So first up, we've got Professor Charles Shepherd, who's been researching coral reefs and other marine habitats for more than 40 years. His work was actually recognised in 2015 as being one of the top 20 most impressive examples of UK research contributing to global development. He's also receiving the ZSL Award for Outstanding Contributions to Conservation later this evening. So, Charles, what are the major impacts you've seen affect coral reefs worldwide over the past decades that you've been studying them? It depends where it is. If you go to places which are highly built up, it can be just the destruction of the reefs because of building. If you go to poor areas, poor villages, so on like that, you get destruction of the reefs because of overfishing, maybe. So it depends where you are. But if you go to areas like the Shagos Archipelago, where there are no people, it's climate change. And that result is catastrophic on its own, even without 
the addition of these other uh, factors. So I suppose in essence then places like Chagos provide us with a bit of a laboratory to see what the effects of climate change are in the absence of all these other threats. Yes, exactly. That's one of its key roles, I think, because there are no there aren't any of the local impacts. It is only climate change which can possibly be causing it, which is mostly warming. In the future, I think it'll be acidification too, but that doesn't happen in the tropics really very much. That's something for the future. But what is happening now is the warming. And in 2015-16, we had a massive heating pulse which destroyed 90% of the corals. There are areas in Chagos now where there are no corals at all, which you can see. You can swim for a long way and not see a live one if it's not very deep. And that is certainly alarming for a place that has no overfishing, mm. no industry, no sewage. Um, that is worrying. It, it really is. I don't think people realise the severity of it. And how different is it now from how it was when you first started studying it? When I first studied it in the 70s, I don't think it was very different to most of the world, most of the tropics. But we've had since then what some people call the decades of destruction caused by all those factors I was talking about. And they bypassed Chagos. We didn't have, we didn't see those effects on the reefs in Chagos at all because there weren't the pressures there. The global issue of climate change, though, and warming in particular, that has affected it. So now I think the gap between Chagos and, let's say, some parts of the world which are heavily inhabited, the gap was huge in what you saw. Uh, now it's closing. Now there are places which are inhabited which didn't have the warning that are better off, actually, than you see in the Czechos archipelago. So what do you think are going to be the likely consequences of what we've seen in places like the Czechos archipelago? Is it likely to recover or not? After the warming that happened in 1998 that also killed the corals to the same sort of degree, almost, we saw recovery. There was no recovery for four years, five years, but then it shot back. It's as though... All the adults had to had to take a few years off to build up their energy strengths and things like that before they could reproduce. Then it all came back with a vengeance, and it was wonderful to see. Places were also looked at in the Seychelles, for example, um, and the Middle East, which were inhabited, didn't recover at all from 98, but Sheikh was bounced back, and that was very encouraging. But then it's been hit again recently, and we were diving 2015 down to 25 metres, and it was 30 degrees all the way down. We've been recording temperature there in lots of places at two hourly intervals for 10 or 12 years now. And the trends are very, very clear. That's incredibly warm, though, for a depth like yes. that. still 30 degrees. It is. And they're usual. What they've experienced in the past before that was at least two degrees cooler, probably. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So two degrees more, right down to 30 metres deep, was... It was a surprise. Yeah, that's an extreme weather event. Um, on a slightly lighter note, mm -hmm. one last question. In your long experience of working on coral reefs, what's the most amazing species or interaction or behaviour that you've seen? Well, I think it's the general one of diving in places where there are still billions of fish and they swarm around you. This what, sometimes I've not been able to do my work in a quadrat because there are too many fish in the way. <laughs> where you have inhabited areas, the fish flee. They don't like humans. They, they've learned. It's a learned behaviour. But in a place where there aren't people, they can get in your way. <laughs> We've got some lovely videos of, um, of Anne taking a picture of them 
uh, sort of saying, shoot, it was getting in, the, it was trying to just explore the camera and the <laughs> flash and things like that. And it's lovely to see that. It's a nice problem to have. It's lovely to see that, yeah. Excellent. Thanks very much, Charles. That was, by the way, a very excellent question, Rachel. Inspiring, kind of in Blue Planet 2 style. <laughs> we will definitely have to ask all of our guests. So, starting with you, Rachel, in your long experience working with Carlos, what is the most amazing thing you've come across? I think, for me, nothing really beats watching little free-swimming coral larvae exploring the reef surface, looking for the perfect spot to settle down. Because for the first few weeks, maybe a couple of months of their life, they can swim around, they can swim around actively. But pretty soon they've got to make this incredibly monumental decision, which is where are they going to live for the rest of their lives? Because as soon as they settle on the reef, they're stuck. And they'll stay there for decades, maybe even centuries. After that, they can't move again. So it's a really big decision. They have to take it seriously. And it's really good fun watching them sniff around, find the perfect spot to settle down on. I love the way that you called it a monumental decision, given the fact that, you know, coral reefs are a little bit like big monuments. So that's very, very reasonable description. Uh, what do little free-swimming larvae look like? Well, they're pretty microscopic. You've got to look at them down a microscope. It looks like a single cell. They've got tiny little cilia, little hairs all the way around the outside, and they can spin around in circles and back up, swim backwards or swim forwards. But they've got quite sort of bendy front ends, and they really do pick up chemical cues from the reef. So they look a bit like a puppy sniffing around, trying to find just the thing it's after. You know, it's, they're just quite cute behaviour. Excellent. The puppies of the coral reefs. <laughs> Excellent. Right, so we've already had the evidence about coral declines in the past and what's happening right now in places like the Chagos Archipelago. But why does it matter so much? We now have exchanged Charles Shepherd with Anne Shepherd. Um, yes, a husband and wife tag team on corals. Um, Anne, welcome to our podcast. Just like Charles, Anne is based at the University of Warwick, where she works primarily as a coral taxonomist and ecologist. She's also a dedicated coral photographer, I hear. I suppose our listeners generally know what a photographer is, but for the benefit of them, what does a coral taxonomist actually do? Well, a taxonomist is someone who puts names to things, and so I put names to corals. Uh, and you have to know what you're talking about. When you're, you're talking to other people about the particular coral, you need, you need to give it its proper scientific name so that you know exactly which one you're talking about. So corals have are known mostly by their scientific name because they don't tend to have common names. Um, there are a few, like stags, stag's horn is a common name, but mostly they're, they're known by the scientific name, which um, makes it less conversational, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know exactly what you're talking about. So apart from, obviously, if we start losing coral reefs, us losing a whole lot of coral species, um, what else are we set to lose if we lose coral reefs? Well, coral reefs are, and corals themselves are unusual in that they build their own habitat. So these little jelly-like animals, tiny little things, actually build some of the biggest structures on Earth. And these structures are very important. They are a habitat for the most biodiverse system on Earth. They produce a lot of food for people, they protect our shorelines. They're like having a big natural breakwater off the shoreline and they protect the shore. On top of that, we are deriving a lot of pharmaceuticals from, from things from coral reefs. And then there's the, the fact that they're a source of tourism, mm -hmm. a great source of tourism for a lot of countries that would have nothing else. 
I mean, for the Maldives, 80% of the national income comes from tourism. Yeah, so if they lost their reefs, that would be that would be it for the national economy. That would be, yes, it would be very, very difficult for them. What, what are the kind of pharmaceuticals that we can derive from coral reefs? They are they're developing quite a few anti-inflammatories, very effective anti-inflammatories. Some anti-cancer compounds have been found. And they're actually using some mollusk species to do a lot of work on ageing, the ageing process. So that's going to be very useful, especially for us who are getting along a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, no talk about age. <laughs> Not on this podcast. So um, I'm glad that the mollusk got a little bit of a mention because yeah. they're my um, absolute favourite species, really. What is the most amazing species or interaction or behaviour or general thing um, that you've come across in your career studying corals? What's the most amazing thing that we are set to lose, in your opinion? The colour, the beauty, the diversity. Until you've looked at a rich coral reef, you've never seen such extraordinary busyness life and enthusiasm and everything. If you go into a rainforest, it's very, very diverse, but it's not quite so in your face. Yeah. Whereas a coral reef is there, really in your face, and it's just something wonderful to look at. That would be a sad thing to lose. Well, indeed. We all agree, yes, absolutely. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. Rachel, with so much at stake, as Anne just said, I think it might be just about time to explain for the more, you know, terrestrial people amongst us, i.e. me, what is the life of a coral like? Well, we should probably say lives of a coral, plural, because what an amazingly diverse range of life solutions corals have come up with over the millennia. For example, that symbiosis I, I mentioned with Suzanne fairly a bit earlier is a relationship that is about 230 million years old. So it's clearly a very successful way to be an animal. Corals can reproduce in a range of different ways from simple cloning, i.e. you just snap a piece off and it will grow back into a whole new coral colony, right up to the epic mass spawning events that you might have heard about where uh, you know, thousands of coral colonies across kilometres of reef all synchronise their spawning to the exact same time on the exact same night so that they all release their sperm and eggs into the water right at the right exact point. So they're really, really flexible animals. They can even change their body shape to respond to different conditions like light and water flow. And the same species at the surface, right near the surface, if you take it down to 60 metres, can look almost completely different. So they're what we call morphologically very plastic. They can change the way that they, they look. And they can even survive out of water for short periods of time. Extreme low tides can leave them stranded in the sun. And so there's a real chance that they could go completely crispy and fry up but they just exude loads and loads of gooey mucus to keep themselves nice and damp while that happens. So we couldn't go without mentioning the Great Barrier Reef, as Anne was saying, a huge living structure, the largest living structure in the world and easily visible from space. And I think considering that's an invertebrate that made that, that's a pretty amazing life history. Totally agree. We're now heading back to the Chagos Archipelago in the British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, which, by the way, makes the UK apparently one of the most coral-rich countries in the world. That's right. You wouldn't quite think it right now with the temperatures <laughs> outside, but there you go. Our next guest is John Turner from Bangor University. John is a marine biologist, focusing primarily on marine conservation, protection and management. And as part of this, he has been, is and uh, will be involved in past, current and future work in the Chagos Archipelago. So, John, to set the scene, where is the Chagos Archipelago? How big is it and why is it so special? 
Right. Well, the Chagos Archipelago is in the central Indian Ocean. Picture um, India and the Maldives and go south um, to just below the equator, and it's there. Overall, the, the area of the British Indian Ocean Territory is 640,000 kilometres square, which is about the size of France, to give you some idea of scale. I come from Wales, and normally everything's in Wales. Yeah, that's true. How many Wales is <laughs> I don't know how many Wales okay. it is, but it's certainly more than France. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay, so John, since you're here, we should probably chat a bit about the programme that we're going to be working on together, the Bursa Ready Programme in Marine Science, over the next few years. It's an ambitious programme to study the animals and ecosystems of the British Indian Ocean Territory um, and how they all interact with each other. We've got a busy few years ahead of us. Do you want to say a, few, a bit about the work that you'll be leading? Uh, yes, so I'm leading the coral reef project, a project that is basically looking at the health and state of the coral reefs and monitoring them really for, for future management. This Bertorelli Marine Program is initially four years, but we have worked one year already on an interim project. So we've been doing a lot of work yeah. over time there. And the new work is very much continuing much of the older work, but bringing in new technologies to look at change but we'll be looking at far more in the way of 3D visualisation of the coral reefs. Uh, because one of the most important things about the coral reefs at present is that due to coral bleaching, they've lost a lot of structure. And we want to actually document how that structure has changed. Mm. Those 3D maps are incredible, actually. The details are really mind-blowing, isn't it? That's right, yes. yes. So we can build these, these, these maps of some... 200 or so metres square of reef where you can see every coral um, in three dimensions. So it's quite spectacular imagery. And we're also looking at animals which you don't necessarily <coughs> think of straight away when you think about coral reefs, but groups of species like reef sharks, which are the top predators in that ecosystem. And also got the name reef well, in got the, the name, right. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. Um, but also seabirds, because seabirds are a really important link in this ecosystem between the open ocean far away from the from the atolls and the reefs and those terrestrial and shallow environments birds fly hundreds of kilometers out into the deep ocean to fish and they come back to the islands and they're bringing nutrients back with them they're going to digest those fish and that that digested fish has to go somewhere so that can affect we think it can affect reef productivity and, and potentially even how resilient the reefs are around the islands that have seabirds living on them so it's a very interesting environment to study lots of different interconnected mm. elements. And related to that, we're also looking at the plankton and the nutrients in the water. And we're also looking at a lot of the cryptofauna, the very small organisms that, that, that normally don't get looked at yeah. in common. Yeah, yeah. But that, that, that's probably where most of the diversity is on coral Probably consisting of tiny little crustaceans, little shrimps, things like that, yeah. living in Tucked amongst away. the coral colonies. So part of the project is not just looking at the really wonderful sharks and big things, or the coral structure itself, but also all those tiny things that live in amongst the coral. Fantastic. Um, that sounds very impressive, a very ambitious programme indeed. Given you're only at the start of this programme, even if you had your one-year interim programme already, what are your thoughts on the adaptive capacity of coral reefs? Are there any life history factors or other factors that corals exhibit which may actually mean that corals can adapt to climate change? 
there are certainly in Chagos, maybe not so much in many other parts of the world. What we've got to remember is many coral reefs around the world are close to large numbers of human beings. They're on degraded coastlines, so there's too much nutrient. The reefs are often overfished. There's lots of runoff from land. So those reefs are actually very low in resilience. They don't necessarily recover very well. What's different about very remote coral reefs is without all those localised impacts from people, we have reefs that should be able to recover quite quickly. <clears throat> now we saw this in the Chagos Archipelago after the 97-98 bleaching event, which was a very big one that affected a lot of reefs in the Indian Ocean. And Chagos reefs looked pretty dreadful for about four years. But by 2006, there was really quite good regrowth of the reef. And about 14 years later, a full canopy of reef had, had grown. So I'm optimistic for these very remote reefs. Um, but this all depends on whether we're going to have bleaching events at a long bit of time between them, or whether we have repeated events. And what's just happened now in 2015 and 2016 are two years of consecutive very warm waters and corals bleaching and dying. And also in the year before that, in 2013-2014, we had a major outbreak of coral disease. What we will expect is hopefully the coral reefs of the Chagos Archipelago are very resilient and will bounce back quite quickly. But they may be not back again in future years if we have more warming events to come. And scientists generally think by 2030, maybe 2050, these warming events are probably going to be annual. And that doesn't give much time for corals to adapt. On a lighter note, in your own experience on coral reefs, what's the most amazing or impressive or fantastic behaviour you've seen? I think probably last year being confronted by a pelagic thresher shark that wow. just swam straight at me. I think it was surprised to see me as I was a bit, because I just happened to look up as it came in. And because the tail is nearly as long as the body, these are very impressive animals. And With the big just, eyes and yes. the amazing looking things. That's right. They? And it was I don't think it realised I was there at first. It was just swimming straight at me. I managed to lift up the video camera to record it a little bit. And then it did one of its tail flips and it just got it went so fast. And of course wow. these sharks use these tails in order to stun prey mm. by doing a spectacular sort of catapult motion where a shockwave then kills smaller fish and then they go zoom around and collect them. So it did that manoeuvre on me basically. Stunned to see it. Excellent. That's great. Thanks very much. There is actually a lot of work coming up in the next few years, isn't that right, Rachel? Um, and that should keep work. you very busy. Yeah. So what do you hope is going to be the end goal of all this research? How will it help us address the current coral crisis? Well, that's the question, isn't it? How do you find answers to some of the, the, the problems in terms of management activities? Yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just impatient. <laughs> tell me now, Rachel, tell me now. Yeah, I wish I knew. Well, hopefully you can tell us what a reef needs to be resilient. How fast does it need to be reproducing? How fast does it need to be calcifying to keep up with all the organisms that are chewing on it and boring holes in it and you know generally taking it apart 
Um, and how important is it that all the other aspects of the ecosystem are in place, like the seabirds or the big uh, reef fish? And then once we know all that, what are the management activities that we can take to improve that resilience? So just one example is those seabirds that I was just mentioning. So yeah, the seabird poo, I was listening. Seabird poo, yeah, it's absolutely. very important. Okay, so in a very nutrient poor environment like a coral reef, seabird poo is pretty much the only incoming nutrient and it's very, very important. So some of the islands in the archipelago have seabirds on them, but some of them have rats on them and very few seabirds. So that's quite different. And we know that the seabird guano on the islands is an important nutrient input that supports reef productivity. So this means if we can de-rat the islands that have rats on them and let the seabird populations recover on those islands, then maybe we're increasing the resilience of the reef that, that lives around these islands. So there may be things we can do, active management steps we can take to improve the resilience of the area. But overall, this is why marine protected areas are so important. Ultimately, by protecting them, what we're trying to do is buy them some time um, so that while we try and attempt to get the politicians to stabilise carbon emissions and get rising temperatures under control, these marine protected areas have some inbuilt resilience. It's going to give them just a little bit more time while we try and sort out those other things. And ZSL is working on a range of marine protected areas all over the world. And I think they're a really important part of our toolkit for conservation, for uh, helping key ecosystems face some of these really severe challenges that they're up against. I also have it on very good authority that apparently de-rat is a proper word. It's a thing. It's an absolute thing. Yes, I know some excellent de-ratters. <laughs> excellent. <laughs> right, so um, there's clearly a lot of work to be done to save coral reefs. And I don't really want to keep Rachel from saving coral reefs much longer because, as we know, she's got a lot of stuff to do over the next four years. But before I let you go, Rachel, let's quickly recap on what we've learned today. So we've learned that reefs are facing a pretty tough time at the moment because it's been a hot few years. So uh, we've seen a lot of bleaching and, and things are looking pretty tough. But we're starting to see some signs of recovery here and there. It's going to be a long road, though. Do you know what I learned? I learned that bird poo might actually be one way of saving the coral reefs. Yeah, the whole ecosystem is important, even the poo. We've also learned something else, and that I suppose is that given the fact that our coral reefs are always struggling with the effects of climate change, what we should really also try and do is maybe take away all the other pressures that they're under. That's right, buy them a bit of resilience, that's what we want to see. Resilience, that's the buzzword here. Thank you for coming up with the right <laughs> word. I also learned that apparently there is such a thing as a de-ratter. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is something I want to be. Okay, so there's one thing we haven't learned though. Uh, what's that? What's your most amazing coral reef moment? Oh, that's a big question, Rachel. You know I'm primarily terrestrial. Well, uh, no. primarily because, you know, I can't dive. I can't pop one of my ears. But I have been snorkeling indeed Almost on a coral reef. Almost as good. And I have to say, apart from maybe the green turtle and the giant clam, the most amazing thing was um, when you just drift above a coral reef and you hear this little yeah, yeah, and then somebody tells you that's actually just like fish and other things nibbling on the on the on the corals. Yeah, that's right. And I was yeah. like, that's amazing. There's a whole lot of sound down there. I always think it sounds a bit like Rice Krispies, that sort of crackling, popping. I thought cocoa time. pops, you know, just before <laughs> just before the milk turns to cocoa. So so that's my my most amazing coral reef moment, without a doubt. But Back to you, Rachel, because you're much more fascinating. What's next for you now? 
Well, uh, next year I've got a whole heap of expeditions to help organise and that's going to keep me extremely busy from January onwards. But colleagues and I are also working on supporting the Blue Belt programme, which is aiming to create 4 million square kilometres of protected ocean around some of the UK overseas territories. Um, we've already got MPAs, as we call them, around the British Indian Ocean Territory and Pitcairn, but we're now planning to target amazing places like Ascension, Tristan da Cunha, and South Georgia and the South Sandwich Islands. Our overseas territories um, really are the most amazing place for biodiversity and we want to spread the word and get support for protecting them and you can get your local MP to support this initiative. Details are all online at www.greatbritishoceans.org and if you tweet about it on Twitter let people know about it by using the hashtag backthebluebelt. Excellent, yes, let's back the blue belt. And um, as soon as you mentioned the Sandwich Islands, I kind of went really hungry. <laughs> so, <laughs> on that note, I suppose it's now back to work for Rachel. Um, we're all going to go and back the blue belt. And good luck with all the coral research. And let's do another podcast in a few years' time to chat about the results. What about that? Great, look forward to it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.